At what point do you leave your church or denomination? Is it ever appropriate to leave a church or a denomination? And what if you're a pastor and you feel you need to leave? How do you go about doing it? Hello and welcome to the God Story Podcast. I'm Brent Siddle and I'm joined by my co-hosts, the Reverend Ian Reid, Rido of King's Grace Presbyterian Church, Palmerston North New Zealand. And our very special guest on the show today is someone who's had to make this very difficult decision, Bishop J. Bean of the Church of Confessing Anglicans Aotearoa New Zealand. It was in 2019 that J., a vicar in the Anglican Church in Aotearoa New Zealand and Polynesia, finally made the very painful decision to leave. Jay, the church he pastors, and a number of other churches now form the Church of Confessing Anglicans. And Jay joins us now. Jay, hi. Hi. Thanks for having me, Brent. It's good to be here. Oh, it's a pleasure. And thank you for coming on the show. Ian, hi to you too. Jay, did you actually leave your denomination or did you in some senses take it with you? Well, that's a, a very interesting and tricky question to start off with. I think both things could be seen to be true. So at one level, the the thing that's leveled at us is we left and there's lots of questions and hand-wringing and praying over things like that. Is it right to leave? Is it ever right to leave? How could you leave? Uh, and there is some truth in the sense that we left. But we also, uh, I personally maintain, we were, we were left behind mm. because we never changed in terms of what we believed and what we wanted to practice and how we wanted to operate as, as the children of God and as a denomination and the network of churches. We didn't change. There was a uh, one moment in time when the General Synod made some changes in terms of their canons and beliefs. And so there's a sense from the other sense, I'm not trying to get away from anything. There is a sense that we left, but there is also another kind of profound truth that we felt we were left behind. And the church, the, the denomination moved to a place that we didn't in good conscience feel we could move to. Yes, we'll come on to talk about how you left and the, and the whole painful process, but we should declare an interest. I declare an interest as the interviewer that I made a decision about 20 years ago not to get ordained. Uh, in the Church of England while I was training in England. And Rido, uh, you can speak for yourself, but you're a, an ex-Sydney Sydney Anglican who is now a Presbyterian. Is that correct? I think the best Anglicans are Presbyterians, so that's that's a different <laughs> conversation, isn't it? <laughs> well, I worked for the Lutherans for four years, so there you go. We'll throw that into the mix as well. So we've, we've all declared where we're coming from. Now, Jay, what is your own background in Anglicanism? Well, thank you. Can I declare my kind of state as well, Brent, just that you're asking me questions on this, which I'm very happy to answer to the best of my ability, but I'm not in any sense trying to pretend to be telling other people what they can or should do. These are very difficult situations for people to find themselves in, deeply personal, and uh, the last thing I want to be doing is uh, telling everyone what they should be doing it. It takes a lot of soul searching and praying and seeking God's leading and guidance. Um, yeah. guidance. Yes, and, and we'd yeah. all agree. We'd all agree with that. None of us is trying to tell anybody what to do. But this is just your personal experience, and I find it fascinating. Uh, I'm the eldest of four boys, and we grew up in Nelson. And my parents became Christians uh, when I was about seven or eight years old. So uh, my younger brothers don't remember. I'm told uh, our family changing from non-Christian to Christian, but I remember it and some some changes coming into the family. And one of those changes was we started going to church on a Sunday at a, a little church just outside of Nelson. And that was an Anglican church. And so through till the age of kind of the end of intermediate school, I went to an Anglican church. Then we moved up to Auckland for my dad to train for ministry. And um, I stopped going to, to church at that particular time and uh, didn't go through my high school years. Um, but I was still involved in a sense in the Anglican scene because my dad was going through Bible college training. 
He spent uh, two years at what was then the Bible College of New Zealand and two years at St. John's Theological College, which is the Anglican Training College in Auckland. Uh, and then we moved down to Christchurch my last year of school for my dad to do a curacy because we were he was going to serve in the Diocese of Christchurch. And uh, it was at that point that my involvement in Anglican churches started again because um, uh, my dad was very keen for me to come back to church. And uh, the, the local church in Christchurch where he was serving had a large youth group. He said, Jay, would you like to come to the youth group? There's lots of girls. And I was shallow enough that that worked on me and I went uh uh, and that church I ended up staying at for six or seven years. It was the church where I became a Christian, and um, and it was an Anglican church here in Christchurch. Yeah. Now your dad was very much. Uh, I'm thinking he would probably call himself an evangelical, as I think I suspect you do. I shouldn't be putting these words in your mouth. I'll let you explain it. But what is the for those who are listening overseas and who don't know the Anglican Church or the Anglican Communion? What is the evangelical Anglican tradition? Uh, well, I guess it's a it's a focus on the saving work of the Lord Jesus on the cross. It's a focus on the need to evangelize. So our great desire is to see people come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. And it's an emphasis on the scriptures being our authority. So how do we know who God is and what he wants from us? Um, we've got lots of helps in that area, but the scriptures are our supreme authority in matters of faith and conduct. So I think if I was trying to sum up evangelical Anglicanism, uh, I'd see it with those kind of priorities above and beyond uh, any of the other structural uh, identifying factors that the Anglican denomination has. And am I correct in thinking that the uh, the Church of England, people talk about it, but broadly it's, it's really four different uh, traditions, isn't it? I mean, there's the liberal tradition, the Anglo-Catholic tradition, or there was, still is in England, I believe, uh, the evangelical tradition and the charismatic tradition. Now, how does the New Zealand Anglican Church fit those traditions into its framework, or does it? Yeah, I don't feel like an, an expert on the whole New Zealand Anglican Church, so I, I feel like I'll be answering this with sweeping generalisations, and I'm not trying to be unkind. Uh, I think that it tends to be there's more three than four. So I haven't come across a really strong uh, Anglo-Catholic flavour in the Anglican Church in New Zealand, as opposed to, say, the UK. It tends to be more, uh, I'm going to sound pejorative and I don't mean to, but it tends to be more liberal with a high view of communion rather than true Anglo-Catholic, which um, I think there's much more of in the UK and in some of the other provinces in the Anglican Church. Uh, so it tends to be more liberal, evangelical and charismatic, I, I, I think, here in New Zealand. But the evangelical has been a, traditionally a smaller grouping within the, the, the church, um, even though I would maintain the history of the Anglican Church, uh, certainly from the Church of England, was it was formed as an evangelical church. I think that's changed over time. And certainly in New Zealand, uh, it's, a, it's a smaller grouping within the, the wider uh, denominational structure. Yes. Has the Anglican Church in New Zealand, do you think, moved from the standards of Scripture and the 39 Articles? Well, I certainly think they have, uh, which is part of the reason that, um, with great sadness, I ended up leaving. Um, yes, I think it's left both. It's So if you have a look at the, I guess, the constitution of the Anglican Church in this country, there's a part in it which is called the fundamental the fundamental part of the constitution. And it's got a number of points there, but the overwhelming point 
because it's repeated so many times through these minor points, is that the scriptures are our authority. And so in matters of faith and con- certainly the the Bible doesn't talk about everything in life, but on the things that it does talk about, it's the supreme authority in matters of faith and conduct, what we should believe and how we should live. And so if in doubt, you look to the Bible for kind of um, guidance and authority in that kind of way. And I think, um, yeah, in the recent years, we've probably moved away from that. And certainly there was a point in 2018 where I think we uh, unquestionably did that. But yes, you 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 actually spoke not just about the Bible, but about um, the formularies, things like the 39 articles in the prayer book and the, uh, the ordinal, which are the three Anglican formularies. Um, just below the Bible, these are the things which express what we believe and how we um, uh, do ministry. Uh, and I would say, yes, we, we've we've broken those as well. So we've broken our own internal beliefs and practices, sadly. What did the introduction of the, because this move goes back many, many decades, doesn't it? I'm wondering what the introduction of the new New Zealand prayer book in the 1980s contributed to uh, the church's move away from scripture and a move away from the Reformation theology of the older Anglican prayer books. Yeah, I haven't done much thinking in terms of specifics on that, but I think one of the dangers of the Anglican Church, one of the our strengths and weaknesses are often very closely connected, aren't they? And something is a strength up until a point, and then it it tips over and it somehow becomes a weakness. And one of the strengths of the Anglican Church that I've always cherished and loved is that we've been a very broad tent. You spoke before about four different groupings within the Anglican denomination. I like that. I sometimes think as Christians, we can be too narrow. We can be too quick to say, well, actually, you're not to mix metaphors, kosher, you're not uh, true, truly one of us and those sorts of things. We fall out over secondary issues where we shouldn't, I don't think. And the Anglican Church has traditionally been a fairly broad tent. There's been quite a, a lot of room for differences over, and, uh, over thought and practice in different areas. And I've loved that. And as I said before, cherished it. But it's not without limits. And I wonder whether the the publication of that particular prayer book wanted to hold everyone together and not say anything was kind of inappropriate or wrong. And so that in and of itself gave the, I don't know, the, the possibility of a breadth without limits. And I think there, there is limits to the Christian faith. Jesus spoke himself about the narrow road and not the wide road. He spoke about things that you need to do to follow him. Uh, and so I wonder whether that, yeah, it's an interesting question. I haven't thought too much about it, but that prayer book possibly allowed so much to be seen as Anglican that the breadth was never ending. Mm. Yeah. What's been the role of Sydney Diocese in your training and background? And how does Sydney Anglicanism differ from, say, New Zealand Anglicanism? Yeah, good question. Um, Well, I did a year, the first year training that I did was over in the UK. It was in London at a thing called the Cornhill Training Course. And um, probably that year was the most influential in terms of my, not just ministry, but Christian life. Because at that point, I I was a milk factory worker. I wasn't uh, in ministry. I just went to to learn more about my faith. But the advice we got there was I was encouraged to think about doing ministry. And the advice was to go to uh, back home to New Zealand to work for a church for three years to see if my wife and I could cope with the rigors of ministry. And then if that was a green light to pursue further training. And we ended up we, we did that. We came back to New Zealand, worked for a church for three years. Uh, they encouraged us to think about further training. 
Uh, and so we ended up going to a, a college over in Sydney called Moore Theological College, which was the Anglican training college uh, in Sydney. Um, and I did four years there, uh, which I, very hard years, uh, the four years there, I think any kind of theological study when you're living on campus and living away from home and things uh, is tricky. And we had two children, but I'm very thankful for my time there. The the training that I received, the people that I met, the, the friendships and fellowship that's come out of that. And the Diocese of Sydney have continued to um, be prayerful and uh, generous to us uh, as individuals and as a denomination. So we're thankful for our fellowship in the Lord Jesus. Yes, I spent a year at Moore. Absolutely loved it. Flunked the Greek exam and had to had to go somewhere else. Mercifully, uh, Oak Hill College took me in because <laughs> in, in England, the Church of England, they had a rule that I think if you were over 30, you were deemed to be past learning. Your mental capacity or something was deemed to be no longer capable of learning complicated things like Greek. So you could do uh, New Testament from year level two in, in English. I actually carried on, did the Greek again and passed it. But there, oh, well done. There you go. But I loved I loved my year at Moore. It was fabulous. Rito, yeah. before we carry on with Jay, your perceptions coming from as a Sydney Anglican to New Zealand, what, what were your perceptions when you came to New Zealand? Uh, yeah, I think what, you know, kind of echoing what Jay has said, that the it's the church just in general here is very broad uh, in terms of its its smallness makes it difficult to kind of work out where do I sit, where do I kind of find myself. And I think, think there's, that's a strength and a weakness in the sense that you have to work uh, with people who you wouldn't normally want to work with, that you have to have fellowship with people um, that you disagree on a whole bunch of stuff, but you can find the core of the gospel together uh, and work together in that. But in some sense, that is a strength, but also it's a weakness because it can feel very isolating uh, that you just feel like there aren't people in the same tribe as you, that you, there are not people who think the same or that you can be sharpened by and kind of encouraged in ministry uh, be, just because there are significant differences with other people around. Mm. Yes. How? At what point, Jay, did you decide, having come back to New Zealand, how did you decide and what was the process? Can you walk us through the process where you got to the point where you thought, I just, I can't do this anymore. In terms of remaining within the... Mm. In terms of remaining within the, the structures, yes. Well, it was a slow process, really, in that um, I'm someone who, by conviction and belief, thinks that as Christians, we're too quick to separate sometimes. And, um, uh, and so I always wanted to be part of us trying to walk together and find a way forward. And I'm thankful that there are there were lots of others who also had that same kind of belief. Lots of people who've disagreed with me and are on a different uh, side of things, who've chosen to do things differently. But I, I'm thankful for their attitude of wanting to find a way forward. It, it seems to me that the Lord Jesus, one of the, the few times he prayed for you and I specifically, uh, was the night before his death in the upper room with the disciples, where he prayed not just for the disciples who were with him, but all those who would become believers through their ministry in the years to come, which is you and I. And he prayed that we would be one as he and the Father are one. So that the unity of Christians is something that I, I think we underestimate to our shame and we break too easily and too quickly sometimes. And so uh, I'd been part of the general synod. So in the Anglican system, the general synod, which meets once every two years, is the national gathering of representatives from each of the different groupings. And they're the ones who set the, the, the canons or church law for the national church. And I'd been 
Uh, I'm not someone who loves synods or, <laughs> or general synods, but I'd allowed my name to go forward and me to represent Christchurch at the general synods for a few years because I felt that it was important to have a voice and have everyone around the table to try and find a way forward. Uh, and I'm I'm someone who just by nature of my personality I, I like difference I'm very, I live happily with difference in lots of areas of life, but in 2018 there were some changes that came in at the general center that I was at, which um, suddenly now in our church law at our church canons we were now endorsing what I would call false teaching, and we were endangering the gospel. And I think as soon as you're doing that, you're uh, you're crossing a line into areas where people have to really think through prayerfully, can they still remain within a structure which is teaching and allowing such things to happen? And that's what happened in 2018. How did the General Synod decision impact you and your church? Yes. Well, the issues, they were issues over human sexuality that we were debating. But in the end, that, that's the presenting issue. It's an, and it's an important issue for Christians to think through and wrestle with and work out where they stand. But underneath it, of course, is the, the larger, more significant issue, which is what's your authority as Christians? Where do you look to for guidance? Do you, How do we know what to believe and what to live? Do we go based on personal opinion and preference? Do you go based on... The, the move of society? Do you go based on government laws? All of those things, I think, can be helpful for us in working things out. But as I said before, the, the scriptures in the end are what God's told us definitively. And, um, and so walking away from that was big. And I think where it came to in 2018 was we made decisions. There were two differing positions uh, when it came to human sexuality. Uh, and one group was saying that in order to honour God and love people, we must um, affirm and bless same-sex marriage and those relationships, because that's the best way to encourage people and uh, uh, love people. And there was another group, myself included, on the conservative side, if I can put it like that, who was saying that actually we need to listen to what God wants in these areas and live according to his ways. And we can't say that God blesses something he calls us to repent from. And because repentance is at the heart of the gospel life, if you're endangering repentance, then people's eternal souls are at stake. And so you can't muck around with that. And so the decision in 2018 was to um, to change our canons so that you could teach whatever you want in terms of human sexuality. Uh, and you could bless same-sex marriages and relationships as being blessed by God. And so you had, it didn't enforce that. You could still hold your own position and teach your own thing, but it allowed it now. So now within our church canons, it's part of church, the, well, not our, because I'm I left, but um, you could now teach whatever you wanted on this and practice whatever you wanted on this. And so then people were left with the decision, well, is that a difference I can live with because I can still do what I want and what I think is right? Uh, or is it a step too far? Yeah, how widespread is the division over this issue and other issues in the Anglican communion worldwide? Because this is a global this is a global issue that the church has been battling with for decades, isn't it? Yeah. Well, it's deep deeply significant in that there have been splits now in most of the Western countries. So the Western countries where the liberal, I think, theology has had the tightest grip and the biggest effect, they've been the countries that have faced it the worst. And um, there's been a, a split 
in nearly all the Western countries now. Perhaps not to the same extent because it, it comes to different countries at different times, but um, there's been a split in nearly all of them. It's been the, the, the second and third world countries who I think haven't had it hit them in the same way. Uh, and they've been often the countries that have held out the hand of friendship and fellowship and support to those of us who found ourselves in difficult situations. So how, in fact, did you go about leaving, Jay? What was the process for you? And for your and because you were the vicar of a church at the time, did the, I take it, if I remember rightly, the church went with you? Is that correct? Yeah, I, I, I mean, it was very hard. So I resigned with another guy at General Synod. We resigned immediately upon the, that vote being taken from General Synod because we felt, uh, among other things, it being wrong and biblically wrong and those sorts of things, we also felt we'd broken our own internal rules. We were part of something which we weren't lawfully allowed to do. Uh, in the constitution of the Anglican Church, the one thing that General Synod's not given power to do is to change the doctrine of this church. And we'd just done that. And we felt that was wrong and inappropriate. Uh, so we resigned immediately from General Synod, but then we flew back to Christchurch. And then you've got to think individually as a person, as a, a minister of a church, in, with lots of different hats on, what's the right way to respond? And that was a really yeah tricky kind of process. I felt very strongly that as a, I probably felt clearer about what I needed to do as an individual, but I love the people of our church and that needed to be a church decision. So we... Uh, as the vestry, the leadership group at that local church, we met a few times to work out what we thought was right, but we thought it was too big a decision for just the leadership group to make on behalf of the church. So we then had two church meetings where we invited everyone to come along. We proposed to them what we thought was the right way to go, but we had full discussion, prayer. I invited a representative from the diocese to come along to those two meetings so that they could have a voice in it as well if they felt we weren't being open or honest about things. Uh, that person's now the Bishop of Christchurch, so um, uh, he, had a, he had an opportunity to speak into it as well. Um, but in the end, we on the second meeting at the end, we voted, and I think it was 96% to, uh, to leave. But it was with... I can only say it was with tears and sadness and regret because, uh, well, my heart was broken that we'd made these decisions uh, in this kind of way. My heart goes out to you, brother. We've I've had to do it as well, and friends of mine have had to do it. And it's it is with tears you do it, and you don't do it willingly, and you don't do it lightly. I know, I know. And so, how many churches are, make up the uh, the ch uh, Church of Confessing Anglicans? Were there twelve that came out? I think have you got seventeen churches now involved? Yeah, it was. I mean, twelve sounds too impressive, and that there were there were about um, there were about six or seven which were like us, who mainly the whole church and the leadership structure came out, but some of the others were just groupings from church. This was some of the hard things. You had people within churches who disagreed with their minister or with their friend or family member, and it, it caused great division and difficulty. But yes, there was. Well, we, once we decided to leave, we then had to work out what to do. Do you become an independent church? Do you join another network? Do you form a new affiliation? And at one level, we did what I think might be the least likely because we we formed another Anglican denomination at the very moment we'd seen the weakness in the Anglican denomination because they'd done things which we felt was so wrong. But we decided to do that. And so, yes, there were 12 churches that initially formed the new diocese and elected a bishop and adopted a constitution and those sorts of things. Subsequently, we've had five others um, 
uh, kind of join, and we're we're looking at planting a couple in the next twelve months. So uh, yeah, it's it's. But of course, that was two thousand nineteen when we formed, and in two thousand twenty, COVID came in, so which caused difficulty for all people, didn't it? But uh, churches in particular. Yes, I mean it caused immense difficulties. We've talked, Ian and I have already talked to a couple of church planters who were on the verge of planting churches as COVID struck. We've only got a few minutes left. I, I, so many yeah. questions I want to ask you, but what's been the role of GAFCON? in this because GAFCON is becoming more and more important, isn't it, in the Anglican Communion? Well, GAFCON's been hugely important. GAFCON's a strange word, and many of your listeners won't know what GAFCON is. It's a, GAFCON stands for Global Anglican Future GAFCON Conference, because when GAFCON started, it was a one-off conference that happened in Jerusalem in 2008. But it's since developed into a movement, which is still called GAFCON, which is kind of weird because it's a nonsensical word. But um, uh, what happened was, what what's happened in New Zealand uh, started happening in America 20 years ago. And the, it hit North America before it hit anywhere else in the West. And you had all these churches and ministers who felt they could no longer stay within the national church in America, but they were still Anglican. And like I was describing to you, they felt they hadn't changed. They still wanted fellowship. But as Anglicans, you need a bishop and you need a diocese. And there are certain things that we need to, to be Anglican. And so African countries started holding out the hand of fellowship to those Anglicans in America. Uh, interesting because many of those African churches had started from missionaries from the UK and America going over to Africa and taking them the gospel. Now it was the Africans holding out the hands of fellowship and support to those in America. And they said, you're still Anglican. And so we will provide you with Episcopal oversight. That's bishop oversight. You can be part of our diocese until you get to a point that you're of a certain size and strength and can do things on your own. And so that conference was to celebrate that and to remind kind of orthodox Anglicans around the world that we're still together and there's still a home for you. And they've continued to do that. And they've done that for us. So at the moment, at the the point where we left, they recognized us as authentically Anglican, held out the hand of friendship to us. And so we're still in fellowship with the majority of worldwide Anglicans. So although we're outside the fellowship of the majority of New Zealand Anglicans, uh, on a world scale, we're still in through the GAFCON umbrella in fellowship with the majority. And um, that's been a, a source of huge encouragement for us. It reminds us we're not alone and we're not isolated in a small island on the you know, the other side of the world. Yes, it's massively important. As we close, we've got a couple of minutes left. Can I ask you both, uh, Ian and Jay, uh, what do you say to someone, be they Anglican or of any denomination, listening to this podcast, who's thinking about leaving their church or who's struggling with issues of faithfulness? What What's your advice as pastors? Well, shall I go first, Ian? Go first, and, yeah. Sure. <laughs> I'd say firstly, pause and pray. As I said before, I think we can be too quick sometimes as, as Christians to separate. We can be too um, hasty to, to jump away. We can sometimes, we can have the wrong motivations. It can be selfishness or ambition or unkindness or incompatibility. And uh, I, it's a great witness to the world of the love of the Lord Jesus when we stay united as Christians. And so I'd always urge people to pause and pray before you do anything. But there is also a time, I believe, where it's inappropriate to remain in fellowship. And the New Testament tells us that there are times where we separate, always with the hope of reconciliation, because we we, we long for repentance to happen and reconciliation to re occur. But sometimes that 
breaking of fellowship is there to help the other person because there have been decisions made or actions taken which bring the gospel into disrepute and not loving to the world, confuse the gospel and those sorts of things. And at that point, I think it can be right. And um, But do it cautiously, do it humbly, do it seeking advice from others, do it prayerfully, because it will be a source of sadness and hardness. Ian, a couple of minutes. No, yeah, I totally agree. You know, kind of, you need to do it very carefully and cautiously. I think you can also do it in a way that seeks to bless the other, the other people as well. In saying, "I want your good," but whether you're you're leaving because over in Jay's circumstance, I think, and and many people probably feel similar in in New Zealand that they've lost uh, the authority of scripture, and so you're leaving, and so you're leaving in a way that you want them to recover that, and so you you want to try and maintain some form of friendship there. I think there can be other reasons to leave as well. Uh, but in doing that, you want to seek the blessing of those, of the fellowship, you know, that, you, that you're leaving as well. And so you don't have to do it in a way that's going to be detrimental to uh, kind of long-term friendships that you want to try and attain some, some form of friendship. And even if it's not fellowship uh, in, in the kind of, in a, in a strict kind of sense. Thank you, Reverend Ian Reid, uh, and our special guest on the show today, Bishop J. Bean of the Church of Confessing Anglicans, Aotearoa, New Zealand. Rido, my co-host, Reverend Ian Reid of King's Grace Presbyterian Church, Palmerston North, New Zealand. Gentlemen, thank you both so much for your wisdom and your time, and bless you both. And thanks to our creative team at Liquid Edge, who sponsor this podcast and who take care of things behind the scenes. Thank you so much. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. To ensure you never miss an episode, please subscribe. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please take a moment to give us a rating and leave a review. This will help more people discover God's story for themselves. If you'd like to get in touch or learn more, please visit godstorypodcast.com. We'd love to hear from you. That's godstorypodcast.com.